you today. So uh, the obvious question is, do you struggle with the fear of other people? Well, you know, I, I worked in the uh, customer service industry for 12 years, and in that industry, and well, any industry really, you, you see the best and even the worst in people. If, you, if you've ever worked in retail, you know it can be a bit of a grind that, that each day can sort of wear you down both physically and emotionally. And even though there are a lot of good interactions, far more than the bad, sometimes the bad interactions overshadow the good. And if we're not careful, we begin to we begin to see the world in a different way. Uh, when we allow ourselves to grow bitter from our interactions, we can even fail to see the person in front of us and instead see only an inconvenient problem to be solved. We begin to see the world in categories, employees and customers, us and them. For a while, at least, this was kind of the perspective uh, that I had working in that industry. And the story I'm about to tell is the story of how God overturned this unhealthy fear of others uh, in the infancy of my faith. So one day near the end of uh, 2012, a, a woman came into the store, and she was looking to return her child's rental viola. And uh, she, uh, unbeknownst to her, she was just a day or so past her grace period. So she was angry that she had to pay another month's rent. And I remember uh, her reaction of anger, just thinking, oh no, here we go again. And uh, then she broke down sobbing and shared some heartbreaking circumstances going on in her life. And suddenly this customer, this potential problem became a person to me and I felt compassion for her. I wanted to do something to lighten her burden. So knowing she was a payment away from owning an instrument that she didn't even need, I decided, well, let me go ahead and uh, uh, approach a couple of the small groups I have a relationship with and see if maybe we can raise enough money to buy the instrument from her. Well, long story short, I told her what we were gonna do and she was so grateful. But instead of allowing me to raise money to buy the instrument, she actually gave the instrument to me and said, donate this to whoever God puts on your heart. Uh, she explained that um, what I did or what we were trying to do for her made her reflect on the many blessings that she had in her life, despite the circumstances, despite what was going on in her family, and that it lightened her burden. So what began as kind of a typical bad retail story turned out to be one of the most positive experiences that I've had in that industry. And I learned how the fear of others could have kept me from serving Jesus, or in the positive, how, how casting out the fear of others allowed me to serve Jesus. Church family, you don't need me to tell you that the fear of others is one of the most crippling fears that we have. We live in a divided time when the fear of others causes us to build walls of indifference and hate rather than build bridges of empathy and love. So often the other can represent a threat to our most dearly held ideas and way of life. By our fallen nature, we're typically tribal-minded. We try to keep to our own at best, but often dehumanize others at worst. You know, this morning, we're gonna look at how we cast out the fear of other people. But first we need to review what we've learned so far. For the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about, uh, about fear. And the verse that guides us through our sermon series is 1 John 4.18. Uh, this is what 1 John 4.18 says. There is no fear in love, but let's say this together. 
perfect love casts out fear. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So we learn from 1 John 4.18 that perfect love casts out fear. That doesn't mean all fear is bad, but a consuming and overriding fear, uh, when it takes over our lives, when it drives our steps, it keeps us from hitting the goal of our lives, from reaching the goal of our lives, which is to become like the Son of God in character, the one who embodied perfect love in the world. We also learned when we see the phrase, don't be afraid, it isn't just good advice, but it's the command behind every command. You know, when fear is our master, we can't claim God's promises for our lives, and we certainly can't love God and our neighbor as ourselves with the love of Christ. But before we can talk about how to cast out our fear of others, we need to ask a couple of questions. And the first question is, why do we fear other people? Well, I've got three reasons for you this morning. There's probably way more than three if we're being honest, but there's three that I found from Scripture that I think will be useful for us. Probably the most common or relatable reason that we fear other people is we want their approval. Let's get it up on the screen. We want their approval. Oh, we might have a disconnect between the screens again. Uh, So I know this one can be hard to admit, but it's crucial that we come clean. You know, the truth is that there are times when we, we work for the approval of other people at the detriment of our relationship with God. Let me give you an example from John uh, chapter 12, verse 42. Many even among the leaders believed in him. That's Jesus. They believed in Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. You know, we learn here that some of the Jewish religious leaders actually believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they stopped short of confessing that truth. Why? Because they loved human praise more than praise from God. Sure, they didn't want to lose their positions in the synagogue. They didn't want to lose the influence and the esteem that they had with their colleagues. Uh, And there could have been uh, significant consequences for their families had they confessed Jesus as Lord. That's all true. But deep down, they're not so different than we are. Let's admit it. We all love praise from human beings. We all love that affirmation, that approval from other people. We all want it. We all want to feel like we belong, even if it means stopping short of God's best for our lives. In our day and age, in this context, I believe that the, that the fact that we want, that we seek the approval of others, is the number one cause of our fear of others today. And this fear keeps us from embracing the freedom that Jesus offers. Another reason we fear other people is we are close-minded towards them, that we're close-minded towards them. We naturally tend to judge a book by its cover. Uh, Many try not to, but sometimes we treat people differently based on where they're from, how they speak, or, or even what they look like. And it makes sense because history is full of examples of people coming together, forming tight-knit groups to survive. People outside of one's group naturally are seen with a bit of suspicion. Take Abraham. At one point, he and Sarah had settled in a place called Gerar. 
Uh, and Abraham had never been here before, but he was afraid. He was so deeply petrified of, of moving into this area because he thought that when the people saw how beautiful his wife was, they would kill him to take her away. So Abraham says, I'm just going to call you my sister. And that backfired spectacularly because the ruler Abimelech says, she's beautiful. I'm going to take her for my wife. Fortunately, God steps in and intervenes and tells uh, Abimelech to return Sarah to her husband. And then this happens. Genesis 20, verse 9. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me in my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Abraham said, I did it because I thought, There is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. You know, Abraham had never been to Gerar before. He didn't know the people there. Whether by rumors that he heard or his own irrational fears, he was certain that the people would kill him to take Sarah. And because of Abraham's closed-mindedness, God had to step in to save his plan because his plan was to raise up a nation out of Abraham, out of Sarah, that would bless the entire world. God had to step in to preserve that plan. Like Abraham, our closed-mindedness can cause us to perceive danger where there isn't any. And depending on our reaction, our, our reaction to perceived danger, this can lead to conflict and lead us into real danger. Fortunately for Abraham, Abimelech feared God and did what was right. But remaining closed-minded will always, always cause us to fear others. Another reason we fear others is we want to protect ourselves from danger. Remember in week one how I said that, that fear isn't all bad, that fear actually can warn us when we're in danger. And what I'm saying here, I'm not saying that we should ignore our God-given instincts when we're in danger. But what I'm saying is there's a difference between discerning a dangerous situation and automatically fearing everyone we meet. The latter keeps us from being fruitful for God's kingdom and loving your neighbor as yourself. But when you think about it, it's understandable why we can feel so fearful of others. I mean, just look at Paul's description of, what, of how dangerous sin can make us. We find it in 2 Timothy 3.2. Paul writes, People will be selfish and love money. They will brag, be arrogant, and use abusive language. They will curse their parents, show no gratitude, have no respect for what is holy, and lack normal affection for their families. They will refuse to make peace with anyone. They will be slanderous, lack self-control, be brutal, and have no love for what is good. Wow, what a description. You know, it's a bit sobering just how well that description of how dangerous sin makes us paints a picture of the times we live in today. But the truth is that sinfulness and evil have never changed. They've always been this way. I think the only difference is that, that the behaviors Paul's describing are a bit more accepted and even sometimes celebrated today. We know how dangerous people can be, and we want to protect ourselves from danger. People we don't know are an unknown, and we'd rather not take a chance than expose ourselves to some kind of danger. But protecting ourselves from danger as our default will keep us from approaching people who desperately need Jesus. We can be prudent in love, 
but we're unable to love as Jesus loves, as, as Jesus calls us to love when our fear of other people directs our lives. This leads to the second question we need to ask. How does the fear of other people affect, affect us? Well, I think it's clear from Scripture that it blinds us to what matters, that our fear of other people blinds us to what matters. You know, one of the major conflicts between Jesus and the religious teachers of his day uh, was Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Now, according, according to the letter of the law, healing on the Sabbath, uh, or healing uh, was considered work, and to do it on the Sabbath was prohibited. Uh, and one day, Jesus, when he healed on the Sabbath, it made the religious teachers so angry that they wanted to kill him. And Jesus says, you've missed the point entirely. John 5, 39, Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me, yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. No wonder you can't believe, for you gladly honor each other, but you don't care about the honor that comes from the one who alone is God. You know, in another place, Jesus says, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You know, what this all means is that these religious leaders, they had taken things that were pointing to the person of Jesus, and they had made idols out of them. They had made those things, the temple, the Sabbath, objects of worship. But these holy things were only symbols of God's coming presence, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus told them that the law itself doesn't save. The law simply points to the one, the only one, who has the power to save. And why were they blind to this? Because they preferred human praise, human honor, over the honor that comes alone from God. They wanted the people's approval and the honor that comes with it. When we fear other people more than we fear God, it blinds us to what matters. The fear of other people affects us in other ways. In addition to blinding us to what matters, it multiplies insecurity and error. We've already seen an example of this with the religious teachers of Jesus' day. Even after the church was established and the gospel was spreading across the Roman Empire, Paul warns his student Timothy how fear can drown out the truth, how fear can often wash away the truth. 2 Timothy 4.3, Paul writes, For the time is coming when people will not put up with sound teaching, but having their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander away to myths. When we fear other people, it often leads to insecurity. And we often think the cure to insecurity is to seek the approval of others, to, 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 to conform to what others expect of us. And when we do that, we think that that's going to give us security, but it does the exact opposite. You know, when we're feeling secure, it's alarming how quickly we abandon the truth for something that will make us feel better. And when we do this, we're led into error, and error leads to more insecurity. You see, it's a vicious cycle where error and insecurity are, are feeding each other off of our fear. What Paul shared with Timothy here is just as relevant 2,000 years later as it was then. It's just as relevant today. 
Whether our fear stems from wanting approval, being closed-minded, or wanting to protect ourselves from danger, it'll multiply insecurity and error. And you know where that leads next? You know, the fear of others doesn't just blind us to what matters. It doesn't just multiply insecurity and error. It causes us to hide. I'm not just talking about hiding from other people. I'm not I'm I'm talking about hiding from God. I'm talking about hiding from ourselves until we forget who we are. There's a perfect example of this in the third chapter of Genesis, first book in the Bible. You know, the serpent tempted Eve to eat uh, fruit from the tree uh, that God commanded Adam and Eve not to eat from. So she took some of the fruit, she ate it, she gave some to Adam, he ate, and sin entered the world. Then this is what happens. Genesis 3.8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. When we're afraid, our instinct is to hide. And when we're afraid of other people, we tend to hide by putting on a mask, by playing a part, by going along to get along. As we hide who we really are, we begin to lose our sense of self. We forget who we are and whose image we've been created. It leads us to hide from others, from God, and from ourselves. The truth is that Adam and Eve traded their trust in God for trust in the serpent. They didn't, they didn't trust in God's promise, and they feared something God created more than God himself. This never ends well. You know, in fact, we see the breakdown of these relationships in Genesis 3. Eve blames the serpent. Adam blames Eve, and even God himself. You know, Adam says, well, you gave me Eve. It's your fault. You know, they didn't take accountability for their choices. They hid from the truth that they didn't trust in God's love. Same thing today. Our fear of other people can cause us to hide just like Adam and Eve hid in the garden. For this and so many other reasons, the fear of others is destructive to a life of faith. But the good news is that perfect love casts out fear. So church family, how can you cast out the fear of other people? The first way to cast out the fear of others is to redefine your neighbor. I want to tell you what I mean with a story. One day Jesus was teaching and an expert in the religious law stood up and wanted to test Jesus. He asked Jesus a question. And this is what happens in Luke 10, 25. One day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your minds, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Notice how the expert asked Jesus, what must I do? to inherit eternal life. The, the word do, um, it, 
it shows that the expert believes that he can save himself through works. And this prompts Jesus to ask how he interprets the law. So the expert uh, quotes two passages, one from Deuteronomy, the other from Leviticus. It all boils down to love God with all that you are and have and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, after Jesus confirms his answer, the expert realizes he's in trouble. How can somebody possibly live such a life? So the text says he tries to justify himself. In other words, he tries to limit the law's impossible demands by asking, and who is my neighbor? He was probably hoping Jesus would say, well, a fellow Jew is your neighbor. But if that was his expectation, he didn't know Jesus that well. In fact, Jesus had a much more radical answer for him. In essence, he challenged the so-called expert to redefine his neighbor. And in typical fashion, he gave his answer in the form of a parable. This leads to the second way to cast out your fear of other people. Observe what others ignore. The story Jesus tells goes like this, starting in verse 30. Jesus replied, a man went from Jerusalem to Jericho. On the way, robbers stripped him, beat him, and left him for dead. By chance, a priest was traveling along that road. When he saw the man, he went around him and continued on his way. Then a Levite came to that place. When he saw the man, he too went around him and continued on his way. You know, to be clear, the journey between Jericho and Jerusalem isn't some easy jaunt across a well-paved road from the local burbs to your Walmart. Um, It's not an easy jaunt at all. In fact, it's a grueling 17-mile stretch that descended some 1,800 feet in altitude. Um, This is Jericho down here below sea level and, and Jerusalem up here well above sea level. This was a dangerous, dangerous road because not only was it dangerous because of the, the geography, but it was dangerous because bandits would post up in caves along the road, waiting for unwary travelers to come along. Now, in those days, many people just traveled in large groups, and there was safety in numbers. But occasionally, uh, there would be lone travelers who would be set upon by these bandits. And that's exactly what happened to the man in Jesus' parable. You might find it odd that they took his clothes, uh, but clothes in those days were considered a valuable commodity. Even if that was all the man had on him, it was enough to beat him and leave him half dead on the side of the road. And then we have a priest and a Levite who are also traveling on that road. You might wonder, why in the world would these, these men sit apart for uh, God's work? Why wouldn't they stop and help this man in need? Well, there's a couple of possibilities. One is that they were bound by a commitment to remain ceremonially pure. What I mean by that is touching a possible dead body could uh, have put their temple duty, their temple service in jeopardy. Another reason that they might not have stopped was a fear that perhaps the bandits were lying in wait, using this injured man as bait to get more from another unwary traveler. Well, notice how the fear of others affects both the priest and the Levite. We've been reading this year through the Bible. Throughout the Old Testament, we've learned that God considers sacrifice and mercy a higher priority than ritual. But here we see both the priest and the Levite prioritize ritual over the things that God cares about the most. And this emphasis on ritual blinded them to what really mattered to God, and they hid 
behind their temple duties. They closed their eyes to the possibility that this man was genuinely in need and that God perhaps had put them on his path. They closed their eyes to this. They might have thought, well, it's a dangerous road. You know, the, the man should have known better. He, he brought this on himself. But they didn't consider what drove this man to walk the road alone in the first place. Their fear of others multiplied insecurity and error, blinded them to what matters and caused them to hide. How do we overcome this tendency in ourselves? Observe what others ignore. In fear, we don't want to get too close. We, we don't want to put ourselves in danger. We want to protect ourselves. So we justify limiting our definition of neighbor and closing our eyes to the need around us. But something wonderful happens when God begins to stir our hearts to observe what others ignore. We begin to feel compassion, even love, for our neighbor. We begin to observe what others ignore. And what that does is it leads us to meet them in their brokenness. That's the third way to cast out your fear of other people, to meet them in their brokenness. You know, some believe that Jesus was perhaps playing on this idea of anti-clergy sentiment uh, that some of the Jewish people had in his day by telling this story. In fact, the expert probably expected a uh, regular Israelite, a non-clergy Israelite would show up and do what the priest and the Levite wouldn't. But if that was his expectation, he was about to be shocked by what Jesus said next. Verse 33, then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you next time I'm here." That the hero ends up being a Samaritan must have been the last thing that this religious expert expected. You know, so Samaria is the land north of Judah. It was the place where the northern kingdom of Israel once lived. And when the Assyrian Empire came through uh, 700 years before the birth of Christ and destroyed the northern kingdom, many of the people were deported from the lands. Now, some remained in the lands and intermarried with foreigners who came into that area after the uh, destruction that the Assyrians brought. Well, Jews saw Samaritans as of mixed blood, uh, of being impure. Samaritans only regarded the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, as sacred scripture, and they worshiped God on Mount Gerizim rather than in Jerusalem. Over the centuries, Samaritans and Jews became increasingly alienated from one another. But here in Jesus' parable, we see this despised other, the Samaritan, coming to the aid of a fallen Israelite. He took the incredible risk of approaching him, bandaging his wounds, cleaning them with oil and wine, put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and made sure that he was taken care of after he left. Despite the animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews who lived in Judea, the Samaritan met this Israelite in his brokenness. Think of the animosities. Think of the conflicts that exist between people today. 
Think of two groups that you think are least likely to show each other that kind of grace, that kind of love, and simply substitute those names for the Samaritan and the Israelite in the story, and you still have a powerful, powerful story that speaks to us today. The care the Samaritan provided the beaten man on the side of the road was incredible, and it's a powerful testament, it's a powerful image of what happens when the perfect love of Christ casts out our fear of other people. And this leads to the fourth way you can cast out the fear of other people. Trade indifference for mercy. Reaching the end of the parable, Jesus asks a crucial question. Verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, let's say this together, go and do likewise. Notice how Jesus flips the emphasis of neighbor away from the recipient of love to the one who loves. Being a good neighbor is risky and it can cost us financially, but that's not all. You see, it requires we reject all stereotypes and love our neighbors as we would want them to love us if we were that beaten man on the side of the road. It requires that we have a love that's not dependent on the identity of the one who's loved. In many ways, it's an impossible command, and that's why we can't simply do it to inherit eternal life. But we often make this mistake of, go, of trying to go and do likewise with mere human love, trying to cast out the fear of others by our own power. You see, we often interpret the Good Samaritan by seeing ourselves in the starring role. You know, we see ourselves as the ones responsible to help others in need, no matter who they are. In fact, my retail story from the very beginning of the message fits into this interpretation. In that story, I was the Good Samaritan who was overcoming my prejudice with God's help to help somebody in need. And because of that, because of what God did in that moment, the barrier, the wall between customer and employee came tumbling down. But we often, but the thing is that we often see the parable of the Good Samaritan primarily as a moral instruction to go and do likewise as Jesus says, but that's not all it is, not even close. In fact, the ancient church read this parable differently than we do today. I believe we need to put both interpretations together, our modern interpretation and this other interpretation together to cast out the fear of others. Scholars call the other reading of this parable the pre-modern interpretation. This is the way many of the ancient church fathers read and taught this parable. They saw Jesus himself as the Good Samaritan, and they saw us, they identified us with the, the beaten man on the side of the road, that we were a humanity crushed by the consequences of sin and death. The priest and the Levite were seen as the law's inability to save. The wine and the oil represents the blood of Jesus shed on the cross for us and the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. The, the inn represents the church where Jesus carries us to be healed. The two coins represent the, the great commandment to love God and to love others. And the Samaritan's promise to return echoes the second coming. Now, is this the way Jesus intended for us to understand this parable? Not necessarily, 
But the parallels are striking when we consider just how the Good Samaritan perfectly lives out this impossible command to love your neighbor as yourself. He seemed to possess perfect love, the same perfect love that Jesus embodied in the world, the same perfect love that, that defeats the power of sin and death, the same perfect love that can cast out every fear. Putting these interpretations together, we identify and see ourselves both as the Good Samaritan called to help others in need and also as a broken humanity that's dealing with the consequences of sin, saved by God's grace. Like Adam and Eve, we were warned about the danger of sin. We decided to walk a road filled with danger. God could have said, I warned you not to walk on that road, but you didn't listen. You brought this on yourself. You belong there in that ditch. God could have crossed to the other side of the road and hid from our misery. But instead, God carried us by way of the cross to a place of healing and restoration and community. And in Jesus' love, we go and do likewise. You see, church family, the love of Jesus restores our love for others. We were the other to God, and now we love because he first loved us. Look, I'm not saying put yourself in danger if your God-given instincts are, are telling you something's wrong. But don't let an overriding and crippling fear keep you from fulfilling the command of Christ to go and do likewise. You see, we're all refugees beaten down in a world of sin, despising Jesus as other until he helps us, until he turns our rejection upside down and heals our hearts. Yes, he carries us to the end, puts us in the church, but the healing that we receive there, we carry out with us wherever we go. And yes, we're called to go out into the world and do likewise, to love others, even those we call our enemies, as ourselves, not as foreigners, not as strangers, not as aliens, but as ourselves. We don't do it by our own power or by mere human love. We do it with the perfect love of Jesus. Family, some of us are afraid to leave the inn. We fear others and we want to stay safe. We want to protect ourselves but we're called to be the body of Christ in the world. If it was up to you and me, we'd hide. But praise God that the love of Jesus restores our love for others. You know, it reminds me of the parable of the sheep and the goats. When we look into the eyes of other people, we see Jesus staring back at us. When we serve other people, we're serving Jesus. We love others. We love the one who picked us up off the side of the road where sin had beaten us down. When you look at another person, we see the image of God in them. Fear can lead to a famine of love in your heart, but love is where we find God. Don't let fear stop you from experiencing the love that God wants to share with both you and others. So are you willing to cross the road when you see someone in need? Are you willing to leave the safety of the inn? Are you willing to allow your plans to be disrupted for God's plans. We aren't good neighbors in order that maybe, just maybe, we'll, we'll be good enough, we'll do enough to earn and inherit eternal life. We're good neighbors because the one who had compassion on us breaks down every barrier that stands between us. This is what worship really looks like. 
when we step out in faith despite our fear and do for others what Christ has done for us. So if you want to cast out your fear of other people, let God work in your heart. That's where it always begins. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love, your grace, your mercy in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Lord God, come now. Be with us. Speak to our hearts. Lord, there are so many fears. One of these fears is the fear of others. But Lord, if we give into that fear, whether we want people's approval, whether we want to protect ourselves from danger, whether we're closed-minded, whatever it is, Lord, that's making us afraid of other people, Lord, you've given us God-given instincts. We know, Lord, we we trust you that you will let us know if we're in, in legitimate danger. But God, don't let us be completely overcome with our fear so that we're not living into your commands to go and do likewise. You're not just calling us to be a good neighbor for the sake of being a good neighbor. You're not just calling us to go somewhere that we've never been ourselves, uh, yourself. Lord, you, you were the one that picked us up off the side of the road when we were beaten down by sin. You were the one that healed us and restored us. And you're saying, you're not just saying, go and do likewise by your own power. You're saying, I will be with you. I will give you that power, that I will give you that strength, I will give you that healing that you need in order to be a vessel for my perfect love. That's what you're saying, Lord. And so, God, help us to observe what others ignore, to meet people in their brokenness, God. Help us, Lord, to trade indifference for mercy and to redefine our neighbor as you call us to. God, you are incredible. You bring healing, you bring grace, you bring transformation to our lives. Lord, let us work for you. Let us serve you and recognize that you are in those and that you are around those and that you love those who are in need of you desperately today. So prepare us, Lord, to share the gospel with those that you put on our path and not to close our eyes to them. We give you thanks, we give you praise, and we lift all this up with gratitude and great expectation. In Jesus' holy name, amen.